Aloha. It's Tuesday, November 14th. This is Catherine Cruz. Mahalo for joining us here on The Conversation, Hawaii Talks. Concerns grow over the violence in the Middle East for those who have family and friends in Israel and Palestine. We hear from a University of Hawaii student with loved ones living in the West Bank area. Veterans Day has passed, but we continue to honor those who have served our country. We'll share the next episode of our StoryCorps Military Voices series. Plus, we revisit the epic tale of how a World War II soldier's class ring, lost in France for nearly 80 years, made it back to his Oahu family. And we take you back in time to Queen Liliuokalani's home, what we know as Washington Place. It was an evening of mele and hula to mark the 106th anniversary of her passing. is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. Fighting between Israeli soldiers and Palestinian militants continues in northern Gaza and, according to the U.N., has caused another 200,000 people to flee south. ABC News is reporting Israel claims to have found evidence that Hamas used a children's hospital in Gaza as a command center for its operations. And Reuters reports that Palestinians trapped inside Gaza's biggest hospital are digging a mass grave today to bury patients who died after Israeli soldiers surrounded the building. Two participants at a rally for a ceasefire on Oahu this past Sunday, uh, Massar and Susie, are worried about relatives in Gaza. They spoke with the conversation, Stephanie Hahn. My name is Massar. Um, I am Palestinian, but I was raised here in Hawaii. Um, you know, I, I feel like I was lucky um, to be here in Hawaii because Palestine here is a similar. You know, we, we feel we're occupied. Um, so my mom's side is actually in a refugee camp. They came from Yaffa. Um, they were kicked out of their homeland, so they went to a refugee camp. And every day, they're just like, um, settlers are coming in, dressing up as Palestinians and just like uh, bothering them, um, uh, harassing them. Um, also, Israeli soldiers just come and take kids from their homes, um, from their families. Um, they come in without like even knocking or even a notice. They just come in as if it's their own home. It's debilitating because you can't do anything. You can't do anything about it. You're sitting in your home and somebody comes in and it's like, get out, we're gonna live in there. Or get out, um, we need to take this and that person. And the thing is they'll come in and they will just put the house upside down. And they don't even, they don't ask you like permission if you could, if they could do that check. There's no um, consideration whatsoever. So it's really sad to see what's happening in Gaza as well because just thinking about the minor things that's happening in West Bank compared to what's happening in Gaza. And Gaza is like, you can't go and you, you go in, you can't come out, and and you want to help them. So I feel really blessed that I'm here. And a lot of people tell me, why don't you go to Gaza? Why don't you go? It's not going to make a change if you're out here protesting. And I don't think that's actually true. I think it's very important that we're out here um, sharing what's important and sharing what the truth is, um, putting that out there for others that don't know what is going on. 
And when did your family go to this refugee camp? They were kicked out, I think, back in 48, 1948, when everything happened. Yeah. So they moved out from there. Yeah. So they've been basically living in a refugee camp for, since 1948. Yes. Um, it's very sad, actually, because uh, their living conditions, back when I went in 2005, it's not, <laughs> it's literally houses on top of each other. The roads are very narrow. You could get, you could be sitting outside your front porch you can get run over by a car because of how small it is um, there's like no they cut off water they cut off electricity whenever they feel like it it could be for weeks it could be for months and of course no consideration um, and it's really disturbing thank you so much of for course. sharing of course thank you so much for you know thank you for this yeah I appreciate it thank you, thank you. my name is Susie I am an HR professional I've been in Hawaii for three years now, since March 2020. I came from Toronto, Canada, where my family migrated from Palestine. So, I want to tell you a story. It was 1955. rushed out to tend to her son who was hit. As she rushed out, some shrapnels hit her. She was holding her baby, her newborn baby. She dropped him to the ground. Her daughter came and picked up the newborn baby and that newborn baby was my dad. My dad has been going through this ethnic cleansing of Palestinians literally since he was born. He moved to Canada for a better life, but the worst part is I will never get to see Palestine as his daughter. I will never get to see my homeland. I will never get to see the stores that his family owned, the farms that my grandparents had where we had our olive trees. If you don't know, olive trees take 40 years to grow and another 40 years to sprout olives. So it takes 80 years for an olive tree to just get the fruit. And Israelis unfortunately poisoned the grounds where we would grow olive trees. Now, I can never go visit my land, but on top of that, Zionism is causing everyone in Palestine right now to be in an open air prison, but honestly, prisoners get treated better than the Palestinians are being treated right now. Prisoners have food, prisoners have water, they have electricity. We don't have any of that in Palestine right now. And even before October 7th, things were still going on in Palestine. If you look up Shireen, she was a journalist who was shot and killed by Israelis in broad daylight during her funeral started shooting at the people attending her funeral because there was such a big turnout. I don't know what is more evil than traumatizing those that are already traumatized. And so I just want to say I love my Jewish brothers and sisters who have gone to Capitol Hill and protested for us, who have gone to the Statue of Liberty to protest for us. I love my Jewish brothers and sisters that use their privilege for good. 
But what I'm personally against is Zionism because Zionism did not start with any religion. Zionism is the political idea that Israel is for the Zionists. Any rabbi who has stood with Palestinians, thank you so much. I really appreciate you and I just want everybody to know it is not anti-Semitic to go against Zionism. Where is your family located? My family was originally located in Shaja'iya, which is the northern part of Gaza. Now they have been displaced to the southern part of Gaza. This is my own grandfather, his wife, and his children. They have all been displaced to the southern part of Gaza. They, right now, are, from what they're telling me, is 50 people to a room. So 50 people are sleeping in one room because half the city had to be displaced to the southern side of Gaza. And the only reason that my grandpa is there right now is because he has land there. He always wants to be close to his land. But the land was poisoned. Nothing can grow on it anymore, but he still feels that deep connection with his land. So he decided to stay in Gaza instead of leaving. And people ask me all the time, why don't they just leave? Yeah, it's so much easier to leave. It's so much easier to say goodbye and just live a safe life. But this is their land and that's not something they're willing to do. They want to stay where their land is. And personally, I think it's similar to Hawaiians. They have their land here. It was colonized as well. And I just pray that any occupied land will be free. Very emotional stories, personal stories. That was Susie, and before her we heard from Massar, where they were both participants at this past Sunday's rally calling for peace in Palestine. Concern for those living in the West Bank continues to grow. Araya Abdofata is working on her master's degree at the University of Hawaii at Manoa. Her Palestinian father is from the West Bank. The conversation Stephanie Hahn talked to her about her paternal father's family's of life there, her safety concerns, and what it means to be Palestinian during this time. My father's family is um, in Palestine and currently uh, Palestinian territories of um, West Bank. So they live in a really tiny village. (laughs) I've gone maybe four or five times in my life. So anytime my dad can afford it, um, we go during the summer, stay for a couple months, get to visit family, you know, see the land and just enjoy the time there. It's um, mostly my uncles, aunties, and cousins that are all there. It's kind of like a, like, like a plot of land, and then everybody has a house surrounding in that land. So you can just, we stay at my uncle's house, and you can walk across the little tiny road and go to my auntie's house. It's really close by. Everybody's close by. That's just like immediate family. We have my dad's cousins even just up the road. So you just walk a couple steps and you're in somebody's family's yard. So it's village life. Definitely, yeah. You hear village life over here, and, but people, they have like what, coffee beans, Starbucks. <laughs> uh, even when I went to Korea, my um, friends, like they said, oh yeah, I live in the countryside and they have a Starbucks and coffee bean. And I'm like, this is not, this is not the countryside. But there it's really countryside. Everybody knows each other. Everybody knows each other's business. Then there's one pickup falafel stand, and everybody goes there um, for breakfast time, grabs some, takes it back home. I think 10 years ago, there was not even any cars. It was just donkeys. So just now there's a lot of cars now. But then 
My uncle rode to work on a donkey even just 10 years ago. My grandma and my grandpa, they farmed land for all of their life. I've heard plenty of stories where my grandma goes and takes the sheep down to pasture. Actually, last time my uncle showed me where it was, just down this hill, and when it would rain, she would go inside of like this cave with all the sheep and just wait <laughs> out the rain. <laughs> I can't even imagine what kind of life you every day. You just go out, farm, take care of your animals, and then go back home, f- feed your kids, right. and do it all over again. So, so what you're talking about is a pretty peaceful existence. Yes. What people understand about this region of the world is not peace. It's the site of conflict. I know that you're saying they're in West Bank. Yes. So they're not in Gaza, but there has been obviously some situations arising too in the West Bank. Yes, of course. So um, my family, like many other families, I'm sure, have come to not leave the village. They only when necessary, of course, like if you need more supplies, food, whatever. They've mostly just stayed at home, not tried to make any trouble, to give an excuse for them to be taken by the IDF uh, soldiers or to be shot by the IDF soldiers. They just stay home. Uh, If they need to get something, they'll go during the daytime, even though it's not much better than night. Has it been like this always, or is this more recent? So there's like little bursts of times where you have to stay home because it gets dangerous. But I had just gone last summer, actually, and it wasn't like this at all. Uh, We would go down to the city. My cousin, he usually would drive us there. We would hang out, you know, have some coffee, cake, whatever, um, buy fruits, go back home, spend time with family. I'm sure in the past it um, was worse, and it's going back full circle to what's going on now. So it's recent. After October 7th, there's been a lot of the IDF soldiers coming in to villages, kidnapping people from their homes, questioning them, taking them, don't know when they're going to be able to be let back home or what. So also the destruction of infrastructure in certain villages, such as there's one village called Janine that's been the roads completely destroyed. Um, There's been statues like just of like horses and there's some stuff that people um, had made with scrap metal, removed gates, removed, made it so the people in those places cannot drive out of those places. It can get dangerous, especially near the border of any Israeli land, so-called Israeli land. There, it's really dangerous. They have the soldiers um, staking out on roofs and going into different homes. Um, If they had supported Palestine in some way during their lifetime, they go in, bomb only that floor of that house, and um, they move on to the next. And when your father was growing up, or even among your family, was there a social integration? Do you think that your family was political? And what is the dynamic between Palestinians and Israelis Um, in your father's village? I would say a lot of, it depends on the person, of course. A lot of my family members, they're more scholars than they are fighters, I would have to say. So, I mean, they fight in their own way through the words and and such. But I think being born a Palestinian, you are political. It doesn't matter if you choose to be or not. You kind of have to be 
because you need to know when to be careful, when to not be careful. And you have to go through these checkpoints every day. You know, you see people with guns all the time. And so you have to learn what's going on, why it's happening, you know, and what can I do to not get myself killed or taken. So I feel like um, the um, idea for Israeli people living within West Bank, are they don't make it easy for Palestinian people to go on with just their everyday lives because even though West Bank is supposed to be Palestinian territory, the um, settlers within the Palestinian territory, they have made it so it's very difficult for Palestinian people to move around. So if a Palestinian settlement is in this road, Palestinian people are not allowed to go down that road. A place that can take you two minutes to get to takes you 20 because you have to go around everything else just to get to that one spot. And like within the village, nothing really political, people just living their lives, going to work, trying to feed their kids. Uncles are just teachers, taxi drivers. They're not really fighting everyday wars with these people as long as nobody gives them trouble. So, but it's when people start giving people trouble, that's when the problems start. There's a lot of um, even tiny little rebellion sparking within the West Bank, I think, because of what's going on. People are getting taken. People are getting killed. You're a younger generation Palestinian American. Yes. I want to know what it is that you feel it's important for the American audience to understand about your family or life there. Um, so I think the most important thing is, like, we're not just these angry Arabs that are going around with their guns ablazing, you know what I mean? I feel like a lot of people think Arabs are very violent, you know, or if they're Muslim, they're radical, or if they're this. There's so many stereotypes that the Western media portrays within America that understandably people don't know any better most of the time, but with this modern media nowadays, Instagram, all these different types of platforms, I think it's nice to understand that, that we're human, so... There is a question for a lot of Palestinians of an idea of fully belonging. Yeah. Right? To a place. What does it mean to claim a home there? And what do you imagine a peaceful home could be? Um, I think just what everybody else wants, you know, to be able to walk down the street with, um, with like your family without having to worry about, you know, your kid being shot in the middle of the street. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> just, you know, just having to be able to go to work or, I mean, you don't want to have to work if you don't want to, like, People can be farmers if they want. You can do what they want, you know what I mean? Walk down the street, drive down the street, be able to go to the store to get some ice cream with your kid, you know what I mean? Not having to worry that maybe there's some person waiting, a sniper waiting that can kill you at any time. Just the freedom to be able to live your life. I don't know if many Americans realize that what they have here is great. You know, you can just go to the store when you want, go to work, you know, they can take their car, go to a road trip. A lot of Palestinians don't have that 
op- the opportunities to do those things. They have to get a visa to go 20 minutes down the road. They have to get a visa to visit their religious sites. You know what I mean? Not just Muslim religious sites, but Christian ones as well. You have to have permission to go everywhere. So just to be able to freely go and live on their land that they have cultivated for thousands of years. Even just being able to go to your olive trees and pick the olives or being able to visit family that you can't go to because they live within um, certain areas, you know. What would your message be to people who are Israeli or Israeli-Americans? Or what do you hope that they can really understand, too? I mean that we're not just the animals that your government likes to portray us as. Because I feel most of the time when describing the Palestinian conflict, well, not when it's broadcasted toward the Western media, they talk a little differently, but when it's completely broadcasted toward the um, Israeli people, they talk of us as human animals, the children of the dark and the children of the light. That comparison, just to realize that not everything you hear from your government is what is going on. To realize that we're just trying to live our lives just as you're trying to live our lives freely because I'm pretty sure the Jewish people have gone through a lot of horrible things as that's the reason why they want their this um, land, but at the same time to realize that it's not one that you can just take because you want it. It's hard to explain, but um, just to realize we're human. You're not the only ones that are human and want a belonging in life. That was Mariah Abdelfata, a Palestinian-American student at UH, talking to HBR's Stephanie Hahn. She was sharing her concerns about her family in the West Bank and her hope for understanding. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, managing water pipelines using satellite technology to help detect leaks and preserve water. Learn more at boardofwatersupply.com. The mistrust was there from the moment the disaster happened. On the next episode of This Is Our Hawaii, Maui's fires have left pain and loss, and for some, a fear private land may end up in the hands of the government. It's happened once before. What's to say it's not going to happen again? Available Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Support for HPR comes from Monkey Pod Kitchen in Waikiki, Ko'olina, Wailea, and Ka'anapali, and from Moku Kitchen on Oahu and the Beach House on Kauai. Featuring live music nightly, menus at monkeypodkitchen.com. Same-sex marriage. Hawaii led the nation in passing laws to allow such unions. So why should the question go before voters again? Well, Honolulu Civil Beat political editor Chad Blair joins us this morning. Hi, Chad. 
Good morning, Catherine. Yes, so what can you tell us about this uh, Change 23 Coalition? Right, uh, well, Change 23, 23 refers to Section 23 of our state constitution, uh, specifically the Bill of Rights section of our constitution, not the federal, but Hawaii's own constitution, which is similar, but has its own uh, differences, including a more expansive Bill of Rights. Well. That section 23 actually states this. I'm just going to quote it directly. The legislature shall have the power to reserve marriages to opposite sex couples, end quote. So, <laughs> you know, we fought over this. You have to go back to 1998 when voters in the state of Hawaii voted two to one. It was a con am, right? A constitutional amendment to give the legislature this very right. The ledge actually had already uh, put that on the books uh, a couple of years earlier, but it's right there in our constitution to this very day. The legislature shall reserve marriage to opposite sex couples. They're the ones that have the power, even though same-sex marriage became legal in 2013 here in Hawaii. It became legal nationally with the U.S. Supreme Court in 2015, but that is still, that language is still in our constitution. And so the Change 23 Coalition wants to repeal that. They want to put another con-am question before voters uh, to get rid of that language and basically uh, repeal what happened way back in 1998. So it's interesting. I mean, I guess just the climate around the country where we've seen um, legislation like Roe versus uh, Wade um, will return. Uh, I guess they just want to be real clear. Yeah, and you're, of course, the Dobbs decision in 2022 is is a major motivating uh, factor for these groups. It includes the uh, ACLU of Hawaii, uh, Council for Native Hawaiian Advancement, some other groups as well. Remember, after that Dobbs decision uh, repealing Roe versus Wade, really nearly 50 years of precedent, Clarence Thomas himself said, you know what, let's take a look at some other due process precedence. Um, this is on record, uh, him saying this, and particularly he sounded out the gay marriage decision, which he was one of the justices who dissented way back in that decision. That was a five before decision. Two other justices also dissented in that case. That includes John Roberts, the current uh, chief justice, and, and it also includes uh, Samuel Alito. Uh, again, another very conservative justice. Uh, Scalia was the other one, and Antonin Scalia, but he, he has since passed away. So the feeling is, if you actually have people on the court, the highest court in the land, publicly expressing their desire to, to overthrow these very key landmark decisions, what's to say that it couldn't happen? Remember, the court is is now 63. It's no longer a five to four. It's 63 because uh, Trump, uh, President Trump was able to appoint three justices to the high court. Well, you know, this coalition may see this as just, you know, housekeeping and keeping with, um, you know, what is currently uh, the practice here. But how easy is it going to be to get this on the ballot for voters? It's it's not going to be easy. You're going to need two thirds of the both the state, House and Senate. You know, it's a Democratic chamber and uh, it, it probably is pre probably likely will favor gay rights, but not every Democrat is. Um, I, I'll just put it frankly, not every Democrat will probably embrace this, but you do need two thirds. And then the higher hurdle is, let's say that it does pass the legislature next year. It then would go on the ballot, presumably in 2024, and we would all vote on it. But here, CONAMs actually require that you have a majority of votes. So it's not just yes votes over no votes. They're also going to include votes that were left blank. 
And there also <laughs> include votes that were overvotes, meaning somebody who voted uh, more than once. And it's a high bar to meet. It's something the Supreme Court at our level has upheld. Con-Ams are the only ones that have to pass this, this bar. And by the way, Con-Ams have been rejected. I think back in 96, there was a push for a constitutional convention. No, there were many more blank and overvotes and no votes than yes, and therefore it's dead. I will say one other thing. It, it's not just a matter of bookkeeping according to the Change 23 Coalition. For them, it's, it's highly symbolic. Hmm. You opened the bit talking about the 1993 Supreme Court decision locally saying, look, you know, you got to tell me why we're in the books. You can't let a, a one man and another man or two women marry. Well, that led to Hawaii being a leader in same sex marriage. So for many folks supporting this repeal, it's about symbolism. It's about doing what's right. All right. Well, we'll see where it goes. But thank you so much, Chad. Thanks, Catherine. That was political reporter Chad Blair with today's Reality Check. You can read that story online at civilbeat.org. We celebrated Veterans Day this past Friday, but we continue to honor those who serve their country. And if you've been in the military, you know your training can set you up with a lifelong career, even after your service is completed. That is the focus of today's StoryCorps Military Voices Initiative segment with HPR host John Zach. It's part of a series of local stories collected from across the islands. Take a listen. This is StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative. Colonel Jennifer Walker always wanted to be a doctor. The Army offered her the education she needed and the opportunities she sought to hone her skills as a physician. Here she is with her husband, Chad Walker, also a veteran Army officer. So, Jennifer, can you tell me why did you choose the military and Army for service to the country? Well, even in high school, I knew I wanted to be a family physician, but I didn't really know how to get there. And my dad had served in World War II, but I really didn't know anything about the military as a career, except for maybe watching every single episode of MASH. My family didn't have any money to send me to college, so I had a high school teacher tell me about this Army ROTC scholarship, and I had good grades, and I was physically fit, and I was really competitive, and so I competed for, and I was awarded a four-year scholarship to attend college. I got offered my first assignment wherever I wanted to go, and so I got to go to a small U.S. Army base in Germany, and to be honest, I really hadn't intended to serve more than those four years, but the Army just kept offering me interesting assignment after interesting assignment, so one assignment just sort of rolled into the next one, into the next one, into the next, and before I knew it, I had completed a 20-year career as an Army physician, and I retired at the rank of colonel in 2016. I had the opportunity to serve with soldiers from diverse backgrounds, and I really learned to appreciate the commonalities that we shared despite our ethnic and cultural differences. Was there ever a time that you had the opportunity to uh, represent the United States in an unusual situation? (laughs) Why, yes, Chad. I got to represent the U.S. Army during Armed Forces Week on the game show Jeopardy in 1999. That's probably my claim to fame. And I have a picture of me with Alex Trebek and everybody that comes into my office makes a question, oh, you were on Jeopardy. And they don't ask me about my combat ribbons or any of my other interesting pictures. They just want to hear what that was like to be on TV. 
Is there anybody else that you might have met in the Army that might have changed your life? Well, I was deployed to Mosul, Iraq, and I met this talkative uh, Army engineer who was of a similar rank as me. Fast forward about a year and a half, and we got married, and that would be Lieutenant Colonel Chad Walker. She sums up her service in this way. Service as a military physician gave me a sense of confidence that I can serve anywhere in the world. StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, is produced in collaboration with Hawaii Public Radio. I'm your host and producer, John Zach. Local support for StoryCorps, the Military Voices Initiative, comes from Hawaii Pacific University with military campus programs for service members and their families on base, on campus, and online. hpu.edu slash military. Veterans Day reminded us of a really neat story shared with us last year by Oahu's Kevin Kuroda. He told us about his uncle, Robert Kuroda, who was a Farrington High School alum and a member of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team in World War II. In October 1944, he was killed in action near Bruyere, France, after leading his men on a mission to take out snipers and machine gun nests. For his bravery and sacrifice, he was posthumously awarded the Medal of Honor. And around the time of his death, Robert's class ring was lost. Well, two years ago in November 2021, it was found by a Frenchman named Sebastian. After months of failed attempts to reach the Corota family, it was finally returned to them in May 2022. Here's a Hanaho interview uh, of the interview that uh, uh, the Conversations Russell Subiano did with Kevin Corota in our studio. Do you know how he got into the Army? After Pearl Harbor was bombed, mm -hmm. he had wanted to become a employee at Pearl Harbor and basically was denied access because of ethnicity. Mm -hmm. And he became one of four brothers who enlisted in the Army. And of the four brothers, he was one of two that served in combat. Uncle Robert was awarded the Medal of Honor after the fact, and his older brother, Ronald Kuroda was awarded a Distinguished Service Cross and had received the Medal of Honor on behalf of Robert and the rest of the family. What was your family's feelings about him and his brothers going off to war? You know, I'm the generation past, yeah. but I'm sure there was a lot of pride. I'm sure there was a lot of anguish. Mm -hmm. I had remember distinctly hearing my father say that his parents were against Robert joining the Army because he already had two brothers who were serving. Mm -hmm. But because of his situation, not being able to get employed is why he adamantly wanted to serve and did serve. When your dad talks about his brother, how does he describe him? He was as straight as an arrow. Yeah. He was uh, integrity. He was not a gambler, not a drinker. He was uh, just a straight arrow, and that's how he was described. Yeah, it seems like a, like a good quality for a soldier, right? You, Correct. Your story has to do with the Battle of Bruyere. That battle took place in October 1944. Soldiers from the 442nd fought to free the French town from German occupation and rescue the lost battalion of Texas. 800 soldiers were lost, and that battle is considered to be one of the 10 major military battles fought during World War II. But your story was about your uncle's class ring. What's that story? 
We recently got back from France. And the reason we were in France is Uncle Robert, he was killed 77 years ago, October 20th, 1944. And in November of 2021, a Frenchman by the name of Sebastian had found his Farrington High School class ring. And in finding that ring, Sebastian is just an incredible individual with an incredible family. He had done research to try to locate and return the ring to Robert's family. Mm -hmm. He had reached out to a number of 442 organizations without success. So he had reached out to different businesses, even my uncle's auto shop, Mm -hmm. without success. And from that, he had contacted his cousin, who was in Iowa, Bridget. Mm -hmm. And Bridget was bilingual, who had called Crow Auto Body. And it was my cousin who had contacted me to say, hey, there is someone from Iowa who is contacting a family to say that Uncle Robert's ring was found, they want to return it. We weren't quite sure it was a true story, but I followed up with the email to Bridget. We found out it was true, and Sebastian had wanted to return the ring. This is when COVID was just rampant, so we established a relationship with Sebastian, and we asked him to hold on to the ring. And when time allowed, we had wanted to go to France, meet Sebastian, personally thank him, and that's what we ended up doing. Oh, that's incredible. And so for the month of May, Mary and I flew up, took a train to Epinal, France, got picked up by Sebastian, and we spent three wonderful days with his family. And he had that day presented Uncle Robert's ring to us. He had made a a stand or display to highlight the ring holder. And the following days, he was able to take us specifically to the exact spot wow. where the ring was found. Yeah. And it was emotional, you know, it was, it was heart pounding, it was teary eyed, but it, it was very meaningful. And after that, the following day, or maybe that afternoon, he took us to where Uncle Robert was actually killed. So, you know, it was was moving, and that was part of this overall message, how 77 years after the fact, Mm -hmm. we were able to get communication, and and I I have to give a lot of credit to Sebastian because he had researched without getting response. He had looked up previous articles with my father and my uncle standing over Robert's grave, Mm -hmm. and this was a Star Bulletin article many years ago, but he researched it, found Kuroda Auto Body and con- contacted the business. Uh, my cousin contacted me and full circle. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing. How did he find the ring? What was he doing that's, when he found that's it? That's good. So I asked him a lot of questions yeah. and it seems that three years ago, his son had requested uh, a metal detector for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> so he buys a metal detector for his son and he says, I want to do something with my son. So he bought one for himself. So he bought the metal detector. They started doing some metal mm-hmm. detecting. The son kind of waned. They didn't continue, but he continued and he has a couple of friends who on their spare time, they go out and do it as a hobby. And he's found a number of items, three rings, mm-hmm but just one that he was able to return to our family, two other rings that did not have any identification then. Mm -hmm. And the ring that he found for Uncle Robert was his Farrington High School 1940 class ring. On the inside, it just said R. Kuroda. Mm -hmm. So by knowing the high school and what was inscribed inside is where he did his research. And he, at this point, a lot of the residents in France are generations down, very appreciative of the Americans, Mm -hmm. 442, for liberating them because 
prior to liberation, they were occupied. They were right. occupied by Nazi Germany, and they saw the sacrifices of 442 and even his sons. They are appreciative of what the sacrifices and what the 442 did. That's pretty incredible to think that that ring was on the ground there 77 years ago. Yes. And over the course of seven decades through all kinds of weather and, you know, all kinds of, of erosion and, you know, I don't know, development and whatever else might happen in that time, it was in the right, perfect place for Sebastian to find it That's, while he was out metal that, detecting. That, that, is part of this, yeah. that is part of this incredible story. So you guys went out there. You, you spent this time there. You got to experience the, the area. Can you tell me a little bit more about what your reaction was to the place where your Uncle Robert passed? It was, um, the feeling was mixed. I felt pride in a sense that America and 442 did to liberate France. And, you know, I was saddened yeah. uh, because it's the only sibling of my father who I never got to meet. Yeah. And it, 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 it was surreal. You know, you're, you're walking on this uh, mountain path and it's peaceful. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there, there, there are other families, uh, not many, but it's a trail. But as we walked, whether it was the area where he was killed or the area where they found the ring, which is close by, there's still remnants of the horrors of war. They still have foxholes, many, many foxholes of where they were dug in. They had memories of shells or motors. Motors are dropped in uh, big holes, and this is 77 years later. Yeah. So it, it was I had a, a range of emotions. Yeah. I guess at this point, the big question is, where is the ring now? The ring is right here. Wow. Yeah. Would it be okay if I took a look at it? Would it Absolutely. be okay for me to... You know, it's a class ring from 1940, and we had talked about discussions about the importance of the ring. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I believe at that time, Uncle Robert may have been one of the first siblings to graduate high school. And to put out the resources mm -hmm. to get a ring, I thought was very meaningful. Yeah, class rings are not cheap. And this was in 1940. You know, I don't see class rings now as being a big item that people spend resources mm -hmm. on. But back then, I know it meant a lot. Did Sebastian say what condition it was in when he found it? Was it just like covered in mud or rusty or anything like that? Or Yeah, it was, I think, about six to eight inches deep. And he had dug it up, was uh, been underground for 70 plus years, yeah. so not in the best condition. And what he did is he just cleaned it up so he could read it and did the research so he could return it. This is a pretty incredible ring. It's very simple. It's very simple. It, it has what looks like the front entrance of Farrington mm -hmm. imprinted on the front. There's, there's some lettering around the rim. Those are the words that say, enter to learn, go forth to serve, okay. which was so appropriate for the school and uh, his journey. And you see the year on each side. I see 19 on one side, 40 on 1940. the other. 1940. And I, underneath, yeah, very clear, R. Kuroda. After I got back, I made sure my dad got to see it. Mm -hmm. So my dad got to hold his brother's ring. Prior to Memorial Day, we went to Punchbowl, mm -hmm. where my uncle was laid to rest, and we made sure that we paid respect to Robert with my dad and the ring. Robert's Medal of Honor is currently at Kuroda Auto Body. Cousin Roland in the shop 
had made a very respectful display mm-hmm. of Uncle Robert's uh, accomplishments and where the Medal of Honor is. I did check with Roland. Yeah. You know, I didn't want to take for granted. So I said, hey, uh, Roland, after the family sees it and after the story is told, I thought it was appropriate that the ring stay at the shop yeah. where he had put the Medal of Honor. And, you know, he his response was, you know, it'd be an honor. He, yeah. you know, it'd be an honor to have Uncle Robert's ring after all these years join the, the Medal of Honor in the shop. So wow. that's where it's going to end up. That's that's great. That's great to hear. What was your reason for wanting to share this story? I mean, I, I think it's an incredible story, but what was it about the story that so excited you to share it? Yeah, I'm a private person, <laughs> not the best public speaker. When I had told friends or I had, you know, posted some information on Facebook, just all the all the feedback said, you know, this has to be shared. Yeah. This story needs to be shared. And over time I agreed. I would have been okay just retrieving a ring, sharing with family and, and personal friends, but the the 442 sons and daughters, you know, they said this has to be shared. Other friends who've had relatives in the military, 442, they said, no, this has to be shared and agreed. It, it's a story that should be shared. Yeah. It's an incredible story of the kind of friendship and love that can come out of someone's sacrifice. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks so much for coming in and, and for telling us the story. Thank you very much, Russell. And that was a rebroadcast of the interview retired Hawaii House of Representatives Sergeant of Arms Kevin Kuroda did with HPR's Russell Subiano. Kuroda shared the amazing story of how his Uncle Robert's class ring, which was lost in France during World War II, uh, was returned to his family uh, earlier last year. Support for HPR comes from Green Building Hawaii, providing energy and sustainability consulting services throughout the islands, featuring LEED certification services for residential and commercial building projects. Learn more at greenbuildinghawaii.com. There's a whole fleet of them. Look on the ASA. My gosh. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots in the west. Unexplained aerial phenomena. Well, if there's a like thing, it's rotating. More people are asking if the U.S. government is covering up what it knows. Is the truth out there? That's on the next On Point. Beginning this afternoon at 2. Support for HPR comes from Mobi, a Hawaii wireless company serving the island since 2005, committed to providing personal service to each customer, featuring a locally based customer care team. Learn more at Mobi.com. It was a night to remember. This past weekend, colorful bunting draped Iolani Palace and the Hawaii flag flew at half-staff above it. Across the street at Washington Place, Queen Liliuokalani's former home, a special gathering took place.
The Hawaiian Mele and Hula concert was to mark the 106th anniversary of the Queen's passing. It was in keeping with the mission of the Washington Place Foundation, which was to honor the Queen's wish to perpetuate Hawaiian culture. The event, Remember Me Always, was an intimate glimpse of the personal connections to the home. It included descendants of those who lived in it, like Louise Gussie Schubert. Well, actually, the foundation, Washington Place Foundation, is trying to follow her wishes of the home when she was setting up her trust, which was to have the home after Aimoku had the home and he passed away. It was to go back to the trust and it was to become a place for a library of Hawaiiana and also to perpetuate Hawaiian language and music. So the foundation tries to carry on that idea and that's our mission for it to do. So we've chosen November to do this concert, a ho'omana'o mao, Remember Me Always, and it's a way of honoring the music that was written for her and by her. And we always choose to work with schools. We have Iolani School and St. Andrew's Priory this year. So we're just trying to carry on the legacy of what she wished. We've just come off, you know, a major uh, anniversary. So many things have happened. We have the Queen's Standard that was returned. Tell us, what, what, what's on tap? So for the Royal Standard that was returned to Hawaii, and the state has decided to do a replica of the um, Royal Standard because it's, you know, not in good shape. And the colors are vivid, but it's still not in good shape. So, and a replica is being made, and then we will have a presentation of it, hopefully sometime this year, and to be able to have it at the home here like it should be. So much has happened with the, the home here. You folks completed the renovations, you have the expansion of the gallery. We still have more renovations to do, but the kind that you don't see, so um, the house needs to be painted on the outside. We do have, you know, we need to upgrade the the wonderful fire suppressants and the fire alarms, you know, just the wonderful basics that you have to do in order to keep a 175-year-old home going. So any other events that you are planning to do, either fundraisers in 2024? We will do a Hawaiian language event in probably in June, uh, like we did this year, and again, a Hawaiian music event in November, like this one. And then we do have our dinner. The foundation does have a dinner in September, shortly after her birthday as a fundraiser. Yeah. I mean, I have good memories of when uh, the governors used to open the home and at Christmas time and then there would be cookie decorating you know uh, uh, out here just you know just really wonderful events just to make it a welcoming place that's what we're trying to do but we're doing it in stages Christmas open house again will happen this year in December the home will be decorated in Christmas and it will be open for an evening for people to take a look at one of the things that was done this year we did a garden reception this year in which the people who attended that event got cuttings of either a plumeria or crown flower from the property itself we're thinking of doing more events like that but like anything else everything is it needs to be planned and it needs to work around the governor and their schedule and so we're hope we can get more done but the this governor and first lady are just wonderful for the home and Governor Josh Green and First Lady Jamie Green were on hand this weekend to welcome attendees. Foundation board member Kula Abiva explained the musical selections that included songs like Paukalani, the Queen's Home in Waikiki. Music was a way to communicate with her people when she was not allowed to speak to her people by the new government that took over Hawaii back in 1893. So 
Um, so it was through her music that she communicated um, all the things that she wanted to do. And so we remember that and continuously reach out to young people to teach them about the values of Hawaiian things through music and through the Hawaiian customs. And so this is a small way of us continuing that tradition here at Washington Place at the foundation. And um, our, our concert here is a little different from most concerts because we involve people from the audience. They're part of the presentation and performance. They're not just, they're, they're not just observers. They're, they're, they're part of the whole action of renewing things, of making things clearer. The Queen's motto was unipa'a, steadfast, in the, in, the, in the light of challenges and such. So there it is. We do things that are that allude to her life in Waikiki. Uh, we allude to, uh, not all things are being done by her, composed by her, but Pawa Kalani, for example, about her home in, in Waikiki and her enjoyment of Waikiki is being sung by Hanakaulani Holt Thompson, who is a, whose family purchased this house or paid for this house. And the dancer, is Sandy Kuaihelani Stevens, whose ancestor built the house. So everyone's connected in terms of, and that's how we want to do it. And you know, it's amazing how many people are involved that we connect with and make it come alive. Our teachers told us, don't do it anything, don't do it if it's, it doesn't connect people to values, uh, connect people to making it come, the history alive. It cannot be, history cannot be dead. It has to be um, alive. And that was Kula Abiva, board member of the Washington Place Foundation, who produced a special evening concert this past weekend, marking the 106th anniversary of the Queen's passing. And so we leave off with Pa'u Kalani, written in honor of Liliu Kalani's home in Waikiki, in a nod to keeping with all that makes a house a home. it up for us today. Tomorrow on The Long View, we talk about aging in office. Share your comments or questions about what you heard on our show today by calling our Talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Look for the conversation segments on our website or anywhere you tune in for podcasts. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. Mm-hmm.